The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week is the beginning of term in many UK art schools, a moment when a world of possibility opens up to students from across the world. But arts education in the UK is in crisis. The teaching of art subjects in schools is under threat from the English Baccalaureate, or EBAC, which 90% of pupils are expected to be entered for by 2025. The pupils are steered towards subjects seen as crucial to young people's education, yet arts are excluded. Meanwhile, at art schools around Britain, funding cuts and a steep increase in student tuition fees over the last decade have created more inequality and more limited resources at art colleges, creating a huge shift in the dynamics of the art college. So this week's episode is an education special. We talk to the artist Patrick Brill, or Bob and Roberta Smith, about his campaign for art's place at the centre of the curriculum, often expressed directly in his art. We look at the National Art and Design Saturday Club, an initiative offering a free Saturday learning programme founded by the designers Francis and John Sorrell. And we talk to two professors at Goldsmiths College about the pressures and realities of art schools today. In the US, we talk to the co-author of a study on the benefits of art education in schools. Patrick Brill, known as Bob and Roberta Smith, is a leading British artist who's campaigned ceaselessly in recent years for art's importance in the face of its marginalisation in English schools. He also teaches fine art at London Metropolitan University, and I went there to see him just as the academic year was kicking off this week. Bob, when did you first start making art about art education? Well, I think, you know, when I was a child. (laughs) I think all art, really, all the artists that I really love are kind of pedagogues, Paul Clay, Joseph Boyce... Louise Bourgeois, you know, I, I, I love the idea that art is a sort of a, a kind of conversational thing and it's a to and froing and of ideas. And so the idea of, you know, sort of art being educative is, uh, is um, you know, both for the artist, it's about curiosity and uh, trying to find things out. And once you think you know something, the sounds shift and you realise that you there's other things to be said about it. So the idea about art been about education self-education in some ways I went to university at a time when they didn't really teach you anything at all I was just left in a room for four years so I felt I feel a bit like an autodidact really although I'm university educated and um, so that's important but to answer your question really precisely making art about problems with art education was uh, 2010 when the, um, the coalition government came in and one of the things that happened that I realised instantly is that when that government came in and they had the they were supported by the Liberals and the Conservatives, it meant that they could throw away their manifestos and start again uh, with policies which hadn't been endorsed by the electorate. And Michael Gove, uh, God bless him, really took that to heart, and he. Before that election, they were saying well, they weren't they weren't going to do any more educational changes, you know, because everybody was tired of constantly changing uh, goalposts in education. But he really went for it, and he created this thing called the EBAC, and it marginalised art in schools. And I thought at the time, I th- I mean I I, I you know I, I thought that was just an appalling. Uh, structural change which was going to damage art education and it's one of those things where, you, where you're sitting in the bath and you hear this and you think oh well that means oh and that means and that means and that means this and it means there'll be less kids going to galleries because they won't know about art you know there'll be less uh, art students it's going to damage design you know Britain British design you know, maybe it's a bit of a myth, but the idea in the 1960s, British design got really exciting because the working classes were invited into art schools, basically, in the 50s. So uh, so I I just knew that was a bad idea, and I started campaigning about it immediately, and I wrote a letter to him, and uh, and I just did what I could. And I also, I, I have educational chops because my parents were... My dad ran Chelsea Art School in the 19... 19- 60s and so I kind of and my dad weirdly had gone to lobby Margaret Thatcher about art schools with Henry Moore 
<laughs> in the Chelsea Arts Club, and uh, and so I kind of had this. I have this sort of meme or gene or something which just thinks, well, you've just got to tell these politicians that's wrong. And I know in the art world, I know in the art world, and artists, artists, and they don't think about their secondary school teacher. In fact, they're more often likely to say, my art education at secondary school was terrible. So I knew that they weren't necessarily going to get immediate support uh, from artists, really. And so I thought, I'm going to do that. And uh, and it's something I know about. it's also political, you know, I've always been a bit of a political artist, but it's something political that I really know it inside out, <laughs> you know, so I'm not contributing just off-the-cuff remarks, you know, I do know about the subject, we're sitting in an art school, you know, where, I mean, London Metropolitan University is is the, like, the main widening participation university in the, in the country because of its location and the kind of students that we get, and so as an art school, it's the most, you know, diverse art school in the country, it's pretty unique and so it's kind of I do know about these kinds of issues you know I'm not just talking off the top of my head it's interesting this idea that I think you're right in saying that very many artists had problematic experiences of of being taught art in schools but um one of the things about when you are taught art is it does expand your horizons in the sense that, for instance, I can remember you know yes you were forced to do tight little still lives and and things that didn't potentially uh, make you into an artist but also I was introduced to Dali and I was introduced to Matisse and that sent you know that's the thing that's being denied to children it's just an opening up of their sensibilities isn't it I think that's I think that's right and uh, I mean I, I I met the my art teacher the other day and uh, and uh, Mr Hawkes and uh, I don't think Mr Hawkes really taught me anything really but what Mr Hawkes did was that he said uh, he was really into dub and reggae. And what Mr Hawkes did was that he said, you've got to go to the anti-racist uh, uh, A&L carnival. Uh, and so we, we travelled to Brixton and we saw uh, you know, Elvis Costello and the attractions and, uh, and, and all these bands, you know, and, uh, and it was an amazing experience. So, it's a, it's so in a way, it's that sort of... It's just that sort of space. I think other teachers can do that. But the but the, this idea of the art room as a creative space is, you know, is a very important thing for for children. And uh, and it, and it, really, it's uh, it's that subject in schools where you uh, uh, where you can bring what you know in other subjects to it. You know, think, thinking about politics or philosophy or mathematics or pattern or or chemistry, you know, you can bring all that and, and it's a space where you can create a synthesis of all those kinds of ideas. And uh, and in fact, that's encouraged, you know. Mm-hmm. I also knew it wasn't just about Michael Gove and uh, the changes to the EPAC, but the, it was the fact that that would have up and down the educative system. So what's happened in primary education is that art has been, you know, pretty much squeezed out of lots of primary education. Well, that's totally wrong, you know. Anybody who knows the history of education thinks about people like Rudolf Steiner. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a advocate of Steiner's education particularly, but you, you know that, uh, you know, children learn language in a conversation with their parents and their peers via visual imagery, by looking at things, by, by drawing a circle and saying that's mother or by drawing a square and saying that's dad. And then you have a conversation, so it's dialogical. It's something called joint attention, actually, that human beings have and dogs have, strangely, in chimpanzees, <laughs> that we can, we can talk about a third thing and have a relationship with a, a second person via this third thing. It's like a triangulation of uh, imagery and ideas. And art is absolutely principal to that. Visuality is principal to that. So squeezing out of primary schools is like a real anti-humanitarian thing to do. I mean, it's going to ruin people's lives, really, not create better people for the jobs market. Uh, so all of that all of that thinking, really, uh, fueled a series of you know, works and protests and films and ended up with me standing against Michael Gove in the election. And it's still going on. I'm writing a book for Thames and Hudson called You Are an Artist, which kind of outlines why people 
who don't think of themselves as artists should should think of themselves as artists. So there was tremendous support in the arts community, in the visual arts community. Did you think that had an effect? Did the politicians listen or did they just plough on? I think the effort by the arts community has created a bit of solidarity and a, a sense that the issues are important. And also it's very important to get other people's take on issues. Uh, it's not just one voice. Art isn't about one person's voice. So that's good but the the politicians have taken absolutely no um, nothing from what we've been saying at all and they've ploughed on with the e-back and they will continue to and uh, and uh, haven't listened at all they're totally cloth-eared and they're damaging British education damaging uh, educational prospects for kids and they're damaging British design and our ability to uh, you know I mean I think it's a bit of a myth the old USP about Britain being very creative and all of that. Everybody has culture around the world. <laughs> it's a kind of colonialism, but uh, but actually uh, you're you're completely butchering that uh, USP. Um, you know, politicians are doing that. They don't they don't care about that. All they care about is league tables and statistics and marketing, and uh, it's just totally wrong. So, in, in essence, what you're saying is in order for there to be a substantial shift in a way that the arts are taught in schools, then there needs to be a change of government. Well, there needs to be more than that. There needs to be uh, there needs to be a change in a kind of global understanding of these things, really. I mean, it, um, and creativity and our humanity and about art, you know. I mean, the UN, UN Charter uh, has it, as it pretty much right you know it says kids should have access to their culture but or but i mean but people now think that they should be a full participants in their culture right from the off you know and uh, and it needs to be on that level really it's not it, it is about a, a change of government i mean god we need a change of government for so many reasons <laughs> but uh, but it, it's not necessarily that it's uh, to make the shift that we need in primary education uh, it, it takes a, a shift in in how we conceive of education. There are people thinking along these lines, and the PISA league tables, which is really, you know, PISA league tables uh, were the were the were the principal organisational force behind, you know, uh, supporting mathematics and science subjects and technological subjects uh, in the Far East. You know, people. People like Michael go for, well, we've got to do it like Singapore. That was because of the PISA league tables. Well, now they're saying that creativity is going to be one of the principal things that uh, that we have to uh, teach in in schools. So that will change. And I think I think there is some grounds for hope, but it, we just need politicians with more, you know, humanistic imagination to to think. We don't want to, um, you know. We don't want to make children's lives so wretched, hopping over the hoops and hurdles of educational attainment. You know, yeah. we do. We we got to stop that and let people breathe in primary schools and secondary schools, and 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 and, and the lungs of a school. To exaggerate that metaphor, keep that going. Yeah, uh, uh, the art, art room really, and and but also music and drama, and it's not a battle for the art. It, for the art room it's a battle for the arts in general uh you know and, and and understanding that understanding really that education shouldn't be siloed into all these subjects really history and geography i think that should be taught as psychogeography you know uh, and maths and science and choreography and art it's it's all the same thing the the places the the edges of things edges of subjects that's where all the interesting stuff happens you know so you're still ploughing on with the campaigning. Your art still does include a lot of, as you say, you're, you're writing a book about, about, uh, about art as a sort of human right, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's trying, it's trying, to, trying to get that idea across. <laughs> I've, been pl I've been trying to get that idea out there to say that it's something fundamental to all humanity, not just to artists. I don't think artists can say where the borders are of art you know it should be you know it's about everybody 
participating in these things. And and one of the new ideas that you have is to develop a constitution. Can you tell us something about? Yeah, that? yeah, the constitution of the arts. Yeah, <laughs> I have it here, and <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, draft form. But yeah, no, the idea of the constitution of the arts. It's a slightly bonkers idea because in in a way, art depends on things not being pinned down. Uh, but but lots of people being uh, including myself came, came up for manifestos for the arts so in every election I've been doing things you know about the arts to try and get people to think about it in a way that is to do with sort of democracy and human rights really uh, but uh, so we had a vote arts campaign but this year uh, uh, vote arts is, is is coming up with this idea of the constitution for the arts and the idea is to say is to say all the things that people have been saying about the arts, but also put it back to the art world. You know, uh, if you have a constitution for the arts, you're advocating the arts, but you're also saying some pretty, you should also be saying some pretty un- uncomfortable things for the art world. So, so, it's a, so it's a kind of, it's a different take. It's not just uh, advocating things to... Uh, advocating the arts to government a lot of the I you know sort of I didn't really set up anything called the art party but I had this idea that we'd have this art party and we had a big conference in Scarborough that was all about advocating how to better advocate the arts to government was one of the lines in it but this is about saying we need to advocate the arts but but we also need to get our own house in order you know and when you say the art world do you mean the very broad art world as in the art market as well as museums and non-profits and all that side of it yeah well uh, well a constitution a manifesto is almost uh, something to get behind if you're uh, you know if you're a political party or something or or lots of artists have come up with manifestos haven't they the, you know the futurists and blasts and uh, and all of that stuff but a constitution is a more of a kind of working working kind of document uh, it's a kind of it says how things operate a constitution really now of course the institutions of art are not joined at the hip in the way that um, you know the legislature legislature and the uh, and the executive and the judiciary are not <laughs> joined at the hip but uh, uh, but a kind of but, but but to try and tie some of these things down is to say uh, well, could you sign up for this, or what would you have in your, or, or to be more generous, to say what would you have in your own constitution? Do you want to give us an example of something that's in that constitution? Well, Article One, Article One says uh, <laughs> the voice of the child is central to the constitution of the arts. Art makes children powerful. Art makes people powerful. Born out of the UN Charter, the rights of child. Every child should have access and an introduction to their culture as a future participant. Musical instruments, clay, paint, pencils, words and dances must be provided. If we hear the voice of the child, this is the key element to it really in this article, if we hear the voice of the child, we will listen to the adult. So if you don't develop the voice of the child, you won't hear from the adult. And that's why politicians uh, don't like the arts. They don't want to hear from the populace. If you you teach people to sing, they're going to shout back at you. And that's what we want you know and so uh, uh, all schools should be art schools the arts must be taught alongside design and mathematics in primary education in, in something called a Leonardo subject so that's a kind of that's a manifesto point but article 3 says no dirty palettes no dirty money no one wants to exhibit in a building built on the deaths of opium addicts no one wants to teach children on a program funded from the proceeds of human despair or despair of the planet the voice of nan golding is worth more than their millions artists don't aim to make money aim to make things better no to free ports artworks are sold as luxury goods and as such buyers should contribute to society via taxation so the idea of this is also to say uh, art, the art world is not our la land. You know, the art world is uh, a lunatic, unregulated, wild west of kind of activity, which has lots of benefits and it's kind of free thinking, uh, but there are some downsides. Article four. Article 4 says, uh, let them in, don't shut them out. No gatekeepers or pot pickers. Long gone in the music business is the idea that a group of music journalists and celebrities can sit around telling people what's hot and what's not. 
people have access and knowledge of the arts in a way that empowers them to make their make and form their own views. Picking prizes is about the power of the jury and nothing else. It reinforces prejudices and scuttles careers. Contemporary art museums must move to an era, era where their uh, job becomes about the curiosity of all art made. Every museum must hold genuine open shows and group shows so that artists can build their careers in an independent manner. Less prizes, more inquiry. It's not cool to discover the undiscovered artist in the last decade of their life. What's cool is to build and celebrate the careers of artists so that we know about them before it's too late. This is about equality. All people have quality. There are not people who have culture and people who don't. Uh, We must value all voices. Audiences must look like taxpayers and programmes must look like the people of the world. So the idea in this is that art, in a way, is like oxygen. We shouldn't be denying people oxygen, you know. It's the oxygen of rights. And so so the, the idea is to try and kind of get people to think, well, actually, art is something that is to do with me, you know. Bob, thank you so much for talking to us. (laughs) Thank you. Now, Francis and John Sorrell founded the National Art and Design Saturday Club in 2009. It gives 13 to 16-year-olds the chance to study art and design at their local college or university for free. The idea was based on the couple's own experience in post-war Britain, where they attended Saturday classes at their local art colleges. Next week, Bonhams will host an auction of work by artists including Bridget Riley, Frank Auerbach and Richard Long to raise funds for the Saturday Club Trust. I went to Somerset House, home of the Trust, to speak to the Sorrels. Francis and John, the Saturday Club emerged from your own experiences as young people. I wonder if you might tell us about that experience. Yes, of course. Um, I was... um, My mother suggested I went along. She was an artist herself. And I was um, miserable at school and making paintings and started making my own clothes when I was very young. So I went along to my first Saturday morning art school and walked in and immediately um, I just felt this is the place for me. It was an incredible sensation. There were things on display which I loved. This place was full of the smell of art materials and we just had to draw and sat on a donkey with some charcoal and did life drawing and it was magical. John? Uh, When I was 14, uh, my art teacher, Mr Ramsey, uh, one day came up to me and said, you like art, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, would you like to do Saturday classes at Hornsey College of Art? And um, I thought I'd give it a try and I went along and like Francis, I was in love with it in the first few minutes and I felt this was like home and so I went to Saturday classes when I was 14 and uh, a year later uh, people were asked if they'd like to sit the exam to go to Hornsey full time what did that entail? a piece of paper and some Conte uh, crayons draw a picture of anything you like six weeks later I got a postcard saying I'd been accepted (laughs) for a full time course I started at 16 which you could then. Uh, but it was those Saturday morning classes which completely changed my life. Were they a government initiative or local authority initiative, or a public initiative, in other words? It was, a, it was actually an initiative that came out of Winston Churchill's wartime government, uh, interestingly. Uh, and in, uh, towards the end of 1944, the wartime cabinet was talking about the future. And it, was, you know, it knew that the world was going to be won in the next year. And they were turning their minds towards what Britain would be doing in the world. And they were very, very worried about trade. Uh, you know, what's new? Uh, and they were particularly worried about the quality of design of British products. And they did two key things. First of all, they set up the Council of Industrial Design, which later on became the Design Council, which I chaired for a while in the 90s. And the other thing they did was they got local authorities to ask art teachers to nudge 14-year-olds towards doing Saturday classes at their local art school. And the idea was that maybe they could create a little generation of young people who would go along at 14, enjoy what they are doing, stick, go full-time, and become the pioneers of new design for British products for world trade. 
all about money and the economy, of course, but my goodness, it worked. And Francis and I are amongst um, you know a number of people who are getting a little bit older than we used to be, but there is a generation of people who went through this experience and actually formed the bedrock of the creative industry sector as we know it now. So let's rewind 10 years from now and you set up your own new form of Saturday Club. What was the impetus for that? Well, we set up the Sorrel Foundation when we sold our design business. We'd had that for 25 years. And we'd done a lot of work in schools and on educational projects and thought that we could do something using our own professional experience in running projects in a different way where the young people were in control of the project. They were, as it were, the clients. Um, And we did a series of very big projects over the first 10 years of that and um, learnt a lot and had some fantastic results with young people. Really, really exciting. Many of them are still in touch. They're on their second babies now and they're still in touch with us. So that was really wonderful. And at the same time, we had this idea for rekindling the idea of the Saturday clubs. We started planning for it, and it took a while to develop. We approached four colleges out of London to see if they'd participate, and they did. Um, We asked them to recruit young people between the ages of 13 and 16. And, um, And the experiment worked very well. It ran over the academic year. We did interventions that we learnt about on the previous things that we've been doing with young people. So we invited all the young people to London to look at London galleries. That proved enormously popular on our previous projects. They loved the chance to see London. That was the number one thing. And then to go to galleries was a fantastic thing. John, John, um, just before we put the mic on, as it were, you were telling me that art colleges are in a way an untapped resource at weekends because they're staffed with the security, the lights are on, the heating's on. Uh, It's it's not just art colleges, it's it's universities, colleges and lots of other institutions. So if you just think about it, think of a map of the UK, there are all these buildings everywhere in the UK within reach for young people who during the week have got fantastic tutors teaching young people who many of them are studying for a degree uh, but when you get to Saturday, what does the building do? Amazing facilities, massively better than any school's got. Fantastic tutors. And what we found also is students who love to get involved as what we call student ambassadors. Um, so uh, there is an infrastructure. There's this invisible infrastructure which we thought could be made use of. Uh, and it's worked unbelievably well. Uh, so... Uh, if you're a young person, even in you know rural areas, there will be something somewhere near you. There will be an institution of some kind that could run Saturday clubs. And our aim, now that we've been doing this for 10 years, in fact, our foundation's been going 20 years, this has been going for the last 10 years, our aim now is to see if every single 13 to 16-year-old in the country could have access to go to a Saturday club subject of their choice right throughout the year. You imagine how that would change society. You imagine what that would do for so many young people. And it's completely possible because the infrastructure exists. You don't have to build anything. You know, if we look at the capital costs of almost any project that you read about, there's billions spent on building stuff. You don't have to build a thing. It exists. Tutors are prepared to do this on Saturdays and they love doing it because one of the key secrets of the program is that they create their own local program within the context of the nationwide program. And, um, you know, what, what I say to young people when I talk about this, say, look, there's, there's three key things. First of all, this is free. It's terribly important. It's not going to cost your family anything. It's free. Second, you don't have to go. Now, that's important because this is not school. It's not compulsory. It actually sits alongside but not inside the formal curriculum and so there is this lovely relationship between the kids in the schools and the tutors and the students in the universities uh, which is it's very unusual and it's very very special Um, and the third thing is that there are no exams no tests or exams 
And uh, that's terribly important again because these young people are all very, very, very tested all week, every week. And this is just one respite from it on a Saturday. How are they evaluated? Well, if you go and talk to the tutors about the way they evaluate how the kids are going, it's very, very, very powerful. And I think that for most of the children involved, it's a very special day, it's a very special experience. Uh, And another wonderful thing is that they make friends. And for many of them, they find for the first time in their lives, they're actually in a social group where they feel very comfortable and extremely happy. Now, of course, you have to resource this. You have to raise funds. You have to persuade people, as you say. And, and, and one of the ways that you're doing this is through this Bonhams auction. Well, this wonderful opportunity. We are, we are so grateful. Um, and we're especially grateful to all the artists who've been incredibly generous and supportive. Tell us who they are. Well, um, Bridget Riley and Frank Arbach, notably. Edmund Dewell, who's one of our trustees, who is the most special person. Anthony Gormley, who has done masterclasses with us, who has given us the most beautiful name, and so on. Barnaby Barford, I mentioned previously, hmm. and many others. And the auction is on the 3rd of October. Yes. Um, do you have a sort of target for how much you want to raise, and do you have a sort of dedicated... Is that dedicated fund for that going to go to particular... But it's particularly about growing the club. And... Um, like, like a lot of people, we're focusing on young people that don't get many opportunities. So it's particularly rural locations where things are harder for them. There's less opportunity. So we're focusing on, on those kind of young people. So it's, the, it's what in the jargon, the educational jargon, which we all hate, but there it is. Um, it's, it's widening participation is the phrase. So it's trying to reach the young people who normally wouldn't have this kind of opportunity. And 60% of our of our um, of our kids anyway are from widening participation backgrounds, and uh, Francis says rural areas, but also you know I mean you go to some of the urban areas well, in this country and it is appalling. You find kids who've never in, in here we are in Somerset House in central London. There are kids in schools here who've never been inside a gallery in London. So so I'm partic- we're particularly grateful to Rafe Taylor who's been amazing from the beginning of this and. Um, he's the guy who's setting the prices, so he's setting the estimates. <laughs> John Francis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back at Goldsmiths College and discussing a research paper in the US looking at the importance of arts education in schools after this. The French artist Jean Dubuffet was never happy with the status quo. The art brute movement, which he founded, consciously turned its back on traditional notions of beauty and saw authenticity in art created outside the cultural mainstream. Dubuffet is still today a significant reference point for contemporary artists. Dubuffet's 1965 painting, Cafetiere 5, for example, which is offered in Bonham's post-war and contemporary art sale in London next week, reimagines the humble coffee pot using an assemblage of unique shapes and colours. Bonham's international post-war and contemporary art director, Giacomo Balsamo, explains Cafetiere 5 is a signature painting from Dubuffet's highly important and influential Or Loop series, which was recently the subject of a major exhibition in Venice. The work eloquently combines the artist's boundless interest in unbridled, pure form of artistic expression with the inimitable graphic style of the Or Loop cycle. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, Daniel Bowen is a professor at Texas A&M University who jointly authored a recent study on the benefits of arts education in schools. His study centred on the Houston school system, the seventh largest in the United States. Nancy Kenny, our senior editor in New York, spoke to him from our New York studio. You undertook your study at a time when the proportion of students receiving arts education in the United States had shrunk drastically. Is there a reason why so many public school systems have pulled back? Yes. So this is actually a trend that has really capitulated in the past 20 years, with the major emphasis being on standardized testing. Uh, that's very merely been driven by education policymakers emphasizing test-based accountability. So what's really happened uh, since really the passing of the No Child Left Behind Act is schools have this tendency to focus on what's getting measured and what they get sanctioned on. And what that tends to have been, at least like the past 20 years, has really been reading math and, to a lesser extent, uh, science and social studies scores. 
So as a result, uh, schools aren't really focusing as much on the arts because they don't necessarily directly see the benefits that it has on these things that they're being held accountable for. And unfortunately, uh, schools that are most likely to come under sanction, which also tends to correlate with schools serving uh, historically underserved communities, is that these school communities are losing out on arts opportunities disproportionately because they're the ones that are even more likely to put more focus and emphasis on uh, standardized testing. I see. And what was Houston's situation vis-a-vis arts education when your research began? So Houston is probably not unlike many uh, communities throughout the United States, uh, with the exception of it being a very large uh, urban uh, district that serves a disproportionately lower socioeconomic uh, community. Uh, Because of that, uh, we're talking about a lot of schools that had made drastic cuts in their arts educational offerings. Um, So Houston, much like a lot of other communities, though, it it tended to vary a lot, but the extent to which arts was being offered in school was pretty closely correlated with socioeconomic status. So schools serving more affluent communities tended to still have a pretty, uh, or I should say not high, but about the same level of arts educational opportunities that they've had over the last 30 or 40 years. Whereas uh, uh, schools that were serving students from lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, those were the ones to where the cuts were happening more radically. So in some cases in Houston, there were some schools that didn't actually have any certified fine arts specialists uh, in the building, just because of the fact that so much of the emphasis has been going to other tested areas. And in many cases, school leaders just don't have the budget. And, you know, when when pressed, in many cases, arts uh, become one of the first things on the chopping block. Well, what did you set out to discover through this study? So uh, there's been a a huge boom in arts, or not in arts education, but in education research in general because of the availability of all these standardized test scores. Uh, But um, because of the fact that they're confined to math and reading primarily, we don't have a lot of quantitative research that's investigated what happens when we increase or or lose out on arts educational opportunities. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to kind of step in and and provide a critical um, uh, study, you know, for a much needed void in the the literature to kind of see what's going on uh, as a result of these decreases. And one of the things that we really had to do as a result of this was we had to really broaden our outcomes. Um, While there have been a lot of um, correlational studies that seem to show that there tends to be a positive relationship between arts learning and uh, math and reading, there hasn't been a lot of rigorous research to to demonstrate that that's actually a causal relationship. And there also hasn't been uh, an examination of educational outcomes that uh, many arts researchers believe theoretically tie to Um, the benefits of the arts. So we wanted to include a a broader set of outcome measures to to really examine some of these hypotheses. And what age group did you target? So the the program itself, which is called the Arts Access Initiative, uh, primarily was targeting elementary schools. So uh, pre-kindergarten through uh, fifth grade, so four-year-olds through 11-year-olds. Uh, it was also those serving uh, a handful of middle schools, which were 12-year-old uh, to 14-year-olds, was the primary area of emphasis in its first few years uh, in which the study was taking place. And how did you quantify whether they benefited from arts education? Yeah, so we really relied on uh, two uh, sources of data to attempt to quantify uh, the impacts of the arts. So we were able to get access to the Houston uh, School District records, and those records included data on everything from student test scores in math, reading, writing, science, and social studies. Uh, It also had data on student absences, disciplinary infractions, as well as demographic variables in in terms of um, identified uh, gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. So we had access to all that data, uh, which will also allow us to trace these students uh, over over several years um, throughout their educational careers. Um, we also wanted uh, to collect additional data on a broader set of outcomes. So in order to do that, we also issued surveys to the students. 
Uh, we created these surveys by going through the literature and looking at a bunch of different instruments that had been constructed to assess students on outcomes such as uh, school engagement, uh, compassion for others, art facilitated empathy, uh, tolerance, um, as well as a, a few other things. Um, so we did a combination of both using uh, data that was already collected by the school district and then pairing that up with um, survey data that we um, administered or the surveys that we administered to students to collect uh, original data. So were you essentially contrasting two groups, like a control group versus another group that had arts education? So, yeah. So the way that this program came to be was uh, there were dozens of schools throughout uh, Houston that were identified as having very, very low levels of arts educational uh, learning opportunities uh, made available to their students. Um, so uh, it was like a cross-sector collaboration to where uh, money was raised to come in and provide uh, or basically restore uh, arts learning opportunities for these schools. As kind of like uh, a pilot um, to kind of investigate the impacts of these um, these interventions, what we decided to do was randomly assign uh, half the schools that participated in the program to receive the money in the first couple of years to provide these programs. And then the other half of the schools were delayed um, when they would be receiving the, the funds um, necessary to provide these programs. So through randomization, we were able to create a treatment group and a control group and then compare the students um, in, in each respective group to um, identify uh, the effects of, of receiving uh, the funds to provide these learning opportunities. And what were the conclusions of the study? So the main conclusions were was that we found significant and substantial increases um, with the, the students who received the treatment um, in terms of their writing achievement. Uh, we also found uh, significant and substantial reductions in the proportion of students at these schools who were receiving disciplinary infractions. Uh, and we also found improvements in terms of students um, showing compassion for one another, at least in terms of their survey responses. So they were more likely to say that they cared about their classmates and wanted to make sure that they weren't being treated badly. Um, when we examined just the elementary school students, who were um, who represent who were in 36 of the 42 schools in the study? Uh, we also found uh, increases in terms of student school engagement. So students were much more likely to say that they enjoyed coming to school and that it was a place that welcomed them. We also found students were more likely to say that they wanted to continue their education through college. And we also found increases in what we call arts facilitated empathy, uh, which basically means that students say that they're able to learn more about their classmates. Uh, as a result of, of art. So basically sharing art, learning about art, sharing, uh, um, discussing art with one another enables them to kind of become much more familiar um, and, and uh, gives them the ability to empathize with one another, um, which we believe is a, an extremely valuable uh, outcome in education. And will anything come about as a result of this study? Yeah, so we've actually already um, had some positive uh, responses from the school district. So the Houston Independent School District just hired, I think it was roughly three dozen um, art specialists, um, in large part in response to this study. Seeing the benefits of the arts for students um, uh, has really um, inspired the school district to ramp up its efforts. It's one of the largest hires of uh certified art specialist in, in a long time. Uh, we're also getting a lot of feedback from other uh, school districts throughout the country saying that um, advocates and stakeholders are able to use these findings to really make a strong push uh, for the arts. Um, like, like I said earlier, like in many cases, we've primarily been looking at outcomes of, of educational interventions through math and reading scores, which we think is, to some extent, uh, hindered the ability to really make the case for the arts. Um, but this really shows that um, the arts do have meaningful educational outcomes and that there is quite a bit lost as a result of, of these cuts that have been taking place over the last 25 years. So we're hoping that um, advocates can use this, uh, these findings to really help make the push uh, to restore the arts in, in, in our schools. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you. No, it's been, it's been a pleasure.
Goldsmiths is arguably the most famous of London's art colleges in recent decades, the crucible for the Young British Artists Revolution in the late 1980s and 1990s, after Damien Hirst curated his seminal exhibition Freeze featuring Goldsmiths BA and MA students. But what are the pressures on art schools today amid huge shifts in funding and student fees? I went to Goldsmiths to speak to two professors there, Richard Noble and Michael Archer. Michael, you've been teaching in art colleges for decades. In the last decade, it seems to me that there have been pretty major shifts in the relationship between students and art schools because of this introduction of these tuition fees. Is that your perception? And in what ways do you feel that relationship has changed? Uh, yes, there have been changes. Um, the, the major one, I think, uh, which comes from the introduction of tuition fees is the, the shift in understanding amongst students of the relationship between themselves and the institution. All of this was inevitable uh, and was clearly articulated by academics um, throughout the country that there is no way that students would not quite quickly see themselves as consumers in relation to the higher education institutions. Uh, and so all of the, the structures of education, uh, how it is that you teach, and in particular how it is that you assess, uh, are, begin to have a number of different pressures put upon them. Uh, it's, it's fine. I mean... The model that I suggest to students is that it's more like joining a gym than going into a shop, that you can pay your fees for the gym, but if you don't do the work, you don't get fit. And it's really not the gym's fault that you end up still not being fit. But clearly there are all kinds of pressures which suggest that. And, for example, all of the... Um, the noise that one hears from the Office for Students about grade inflation, uh, that is, is, as night follows day, a consequence of the introduction of fees at that level. And Richard, is there a sense in which institutions are putting pressure on the art departments to sort of confirm that process of, of students becoming consumers? Um. Yes, I, I'm not sure they're putting specific pressures on art departments. Uh, I think that the um, the new legislation that includes universities under the Consumer Protection Act has created a lot of regulations that universities feel they have to comply with. And this affects uh, a whole range of things, the way you advertise courses, the kind of information you provide in advance, um, the way you manage student expectations, but it also affects um, disciplinary procedures. For instance, if someone acts badly, um, the range of, 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 of disciplinary procedures open to us have to be somehow coordinated with the uh, consumer protection law and the new ombudsman that's set up to kind of regulate whether or not universities are treating their consumer students fairly. So there are a whole range of things that um, come to us as uh, regulations that we, in a, at some level, have to comply with. Now, of course, we duck and dive. We don't, you know, we are, as Michael um, has said, we're very resistant to uh, accepting the consumer model for our students. And, and we try our best to, in a way, insulate them from that. But, but of course, at the same time, when they want something and they, they can very quickly become, you know, the angry person in the shoe shop or the, <laughs> or the supermarket. So. Yeah. Tell me something about that because I'm, I'm intrigued how it has affected the way that students respond to the institution, to the art college. And that can mean the tutors, but the institution more broadly. Michael, perhaps you might say something about about, you know, what's the actual experience of teaching the students like now? I think there's one thing I'd like to say sort of initially about this, which is that I think both Richard and I have been talking rather more generally about education rather than specifically focusing on art. Um, but of course, 
when one's dealing with art and one's dealing with a whole group of students who you are essentially inviting to be um, self-generating in terms of their ideas. You're not telling them what to make, telling them what to do. They are the ones who are coming up with the ideas. They are the artists who you're talking to. What you are encouraging, encouraging them to do and to develop the ability to do over the three years is consistently to ask questions and to be in terms of their own discipline, as demanding as they possibly can be. So this new kind of, as it were, economic market-oriented structure for education in general actually does have a particular face when we're talking about art education because there are lots of sort of blurred lines between, on the one hand, the way that you are wanting students endlessly to be asking you questions and wanting things of you uh, while at the same time trying to do what Richard suggests which is to manage their broader expectations about simply what is possible within uh, the three years of a, of a degree. So is there a sense in which despite this being a problematic idea that the, the, the more transactional relationship there is a certain sense in which students feel they might have might possess more agency in this process uh yes they do um and and as i say it it's it's somehow always encouraged because they ask for something and as as a tutor you want to provide whatever that is the kind of support or the interest in or the engagement with the work that they're doing with the ideas um and how they might develop those and realize them in their work. Uh, and you, you never want to close that off. You never want to say, please, that's enough. You've had everything that this college can give you. Um, but of course, they will always continue to do it. Um, and on the whole, I have to say that that's something that I thoroughly cherish. And without it, the, the program, this particular program, and its you know, its very positive features would would be diminished. Richard, do you want to say something about the sort of the way that that um, you structure the program and how um, uh, something which it seems is very difficult to structure, like art education, can fit in with a kind of institutional model? Well, I think we've been very fortunate at Goldsmiths in the sense that uh, the, the art department's been part of the university since its foundation in the 1880s. So um, the university's always been quite tolerant of the uh, uniqueness and eccentricities of, of art education. I mean, Michael can perhaps speak to this better, but in terms of undergraduate education and indeed in postgraduate education, we're trying we have tried, I think, quite successfully to preserve the model that was developed by John Thompson and Michael Craig Martin in the 1970s and 80s. So when undergraduate students come in, they're all mixed together in the studios and in the tutor groups, and they learn from each other as well as from their tutors. Um, we have large numbers of visiting tutors who come in from outside because we're in London and we can do that. And it makes, uh, uh, makes us a very interesting program for students. Um, we have uh, now, I think, as a consequence of, of the uh, consumerization, if you like, of universities, we have many more moments in which students can articulate their desires at a sort of structural level. So we have staff student fora. The students may want more um, time in the studios. They may want a larger casting lab. They may want uh, better mental health services. I mean, a range of things like that. Um, and I think on the whole, those have been quite positive. I mean, at times, students will demand things that we just can't provide. And and, you know, it's, it's frustrating because you work really hard to create an environment where they all have studios, where they have uh, excellent workshops and laboratories, fantastic teachers, and yet they want more. But as Michael says, in a way, we need that. We need that ambition. We need that drive. 
you know, okay, like any person of my generation, you know, we tend to think, as our parents thought about us, that our children have an overweening sense of entitlement, you know. I mean, it's hard to resist that at times. But I think Michael's absolutely right. I think the way the drive to improve things affects us is that generally we do. Every year we make improvements, and a lot of that is driven by student demand. So, In a way, if you're leading an art course, Richard, maybe you could talk, talk about this. You have to, you know, in a way, one of the primary responsibilities is to try and nurture that kind of collaborative spirit and the way that uh, way that students can learn from each other as well as from tutors. Yes, I think that was part of the genius of the transformation that John Thompson affected in the 1970s is that he created an environment where people had to work together, where third year students worked with first year students, where they critique each other's work and, 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 and that kind of um, uh, inter-year engagement, I think, has been really beneficial and important, and it's one of the things that we really hang on to. Um, we also have a, a sort of system where when the degree shows come, the first and second years have to work f- for the third years in the preparation of the degree show, that so they get a sense of what it's like, of the, of the pressure, of what you need to do. I think that's all really positive, and... Um, so yes, it's 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 really important that we, particularly as Michael says, in in a, in a program where much of the curriculum, most of the curriculum, is generated by the students themselves, that this process constantly be interrogated and investigated and discussed. So it is a talking shop, as well as a place where people have to make stuff all the time. Um, because of the cuts, there's been a lot of focus on the need for universities to draw in increasing numbers of students from overseas. Um, Simultaneously, one of the things which has most benefited the British art scene in recent decades has been this wonderfully cosmopolitan uh, environment. How do you see that balance at Goldsmiths now in terms of the balance between overseas students, students from here? Um. I think it's it's quite a good balance. I mean, I think that Goldsmiths uh, and the Royal College and the Slade and some other Central St. Martins have been very important to the ecology of the London art world and its development over the past 30 years, which has been amazing. Um, partly because we have drawn people from so many different parts of the world. They come here to study and they often stay because the environment is very supportive and there's many opportunities and so on. There is no doubt at the same time that the expansion of um, non-EU students has been driven by economic factors. I mean, that started in the 1980s, it must be said, in 1980, in fact, because I remember being a student at the LSE and having my fees raised dramatically uh, and shockingly at the time. <laughs> but in, in any case, it's, 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 the pressure has become much greater in, in, since 2012 because all our income, or a very, very substantial amount of our income, comes through, at Goldsmiths comes through tuition. So uh, in our department, um, we've managed this by, uh, we have about 30 to 35% overseas students at the undergraduate level. And we have a, a year zero, an extension program, where students who want to come from overseas who want to do an undergraduate course tend to do that program first, and they can work on their English language skills. They learn what it is to be a goldsmith. Um, often they haven't done a foundation year, so it isn't a foundation course, but it functions for some of them as a way of preparing them for the BA or the Joint Honours Program that we run at the BA level. Um, And so that gives us a way of uh, making sure that the students from overseas who join the BAs are ready. So we try to manage the... uh, We think it's fantastic. We think they add a huge amount uh, to the programs. uh, But we need to be sure that they're at the level where they can flourish and, and, and support the other students who are supporting them. And what about the balance of, um, uh, for want of a better word, uh, 
class background at Goldsmiths because one of the sort of famous things about that generation of artists that emerged from here having been taught by John Thompson and and Michael Craig Martin in the 80s was that you had people like Sarah Lucas and Michael Landy who were working class kids who had the same opportunities as anybody else is is there any erosion of the opportunities given to people from working class backgrounds now uh we have um a program which is specifically focused on widening participation. I mean, there is a college one, but obviously within the department, we also have this. So we have connections with uh, a whole range of local colleges, but also local schools. Uh, and we have someone whose specific role it is to organize uh, sessions and groups of students to go and work with pupils in the local schools uh, and this has quite a, uh, a positive effect in terms mm. of students who then think I'd never really thought about doing an art degree but actually there are all kinds of ways in which this seems very interesting and exciting so they might come and do our summer school for example and then think about going to do a foundation or to apply uh, for the degree um, so it's it's really something that's kind of in in the front of everyone's minds as as an important thing and certainly within the the general conversation in the department amongst the students that is obviously one of the the factors one of the dimensions of the the conversations along with uh, all of the other ones that you might imagine to be there in terms of race and gender and so on um, and I think I'd like also to add to what Richard was saying about the overseas students. Um, I think one of the one of the really positive things about the the increase in that proportion, I guess from maybe twenty five percent when I first started as the as the program leader to around about thirty or so that it is now, um, is that it's much clearer to everybody that's both tutors and students that. Uh, students are not simply coming here to be to have delivered to them as it were the western european and north american view of what it is to think about to make and to look at art that actually that that cultural mix is an extraordinarily important one and that all of the students who are home students as much as anyone else should become or should see it as an opportunity to become much more aware of the different expectations, the different dynamics, the different ambitions uh, and ideas of the students from all over the world who are coming here to study. And do you find then that that students from overseas are in a way bringing with them a completely different canon and, and, and also a different attitude to the environment of London's art scene because I know certainly that I spoke to David Mab who's a teacher on the MFA program here and he was telling me that interestingly quite a lot more of the international students are particularly interested in that sort of YBA period uh, whereas the British students are in some way more resistant to it and want to forge a different kind of identity I wonder if that's something which you're encountering too just in a way sort of unexpected trajectories and 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 um, art historical references among the different students from different backgrounds? Uh, there certainly are uh, different references. And uh, I think just that's sort of um, understandable that, you know, that's one of the things that has made Goldsmiths a name for everybody around the world, that YBA generation. So certainly it's something that a lot of students from, say, Korea or uh, Singapore or Taiwan or China would know about, um, and but I think that that's quite that's quite quickly subsumed within the larger conversations uh, that that take place because that that's more really the identification of of this place by a tag. This is where they came from. But obviously, as soon as they arrive, they recognize there are all kinds of possibilities and opportunities for themselves to develop their own work. And that's the much richer conversation. Uh, and so when they present a work, for example, in the convener situation, um, one of the interesting things is to observe and to take part in the conversations within which all of the students present are not simply 
talking about the individual work of art that they're looking at, but also trying to come to terms with the context and the set of ideas and the structure of thought out of which this is arising. Lastly, Richard, we're in this moment where there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, Brexit, and I'm wondering how that's affecting international response to coming to Britain to study. Do you, is there any noticeable effect, do you think? Um, there isn't a, a, a noticeable effect on uh, non-EU students, but we do have a strong sense that uh, students from um, the EU outside the UK um, are not coming in the same numbers that they did. The number of applications is down and the number of conversions to students is down. Uh, this may, I suspect, primarily be to do with uncertainty about what their status would be after Brexit, if there's a hard Brexit. If there's some sort of deal or a new referendum, I suspect that will change and we'll have many more Europeans applying. I mean, we are, um, in in like all universities, we are sort of profoundly integrated into the EU. We draw many of our best students from there. Uh, we have strong relationships with uh, the Hochschule in Hamburg and, and other organizations in Europe. So, and, and, and also teachers and artists, you know, and, and some of our staff live in Brussels or Berlin and so on. So it's, it's for us, uh, it's been very unsettling. Um, and I'd like to say that we have a plan, but it's just very difficult to plan when you don't know what exactly is going to happen. So, yes, it's it's quite a problematic situation. Well, Richard and Michael, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. You can read all the latest news online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so you can read our content across multiple platforms. And do subscribe for free to our daily newsletter. For all the latest stories, go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. We also have a new newsletter called Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our market experts. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them. And if you enjoy it, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and we're on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Join us next week for another bumper podcast, this time focusing on the Freeze Art Fair with some rather special artist interviews. See you then. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.